0: Today we have Dr. Ron Garbo on the show, a physical medicine and rehabilitation doc who works across the whole spectrum from individuals who have chronic pain to high level athletes and really his area of interest is what he calls rehabilitation of the autonomic nervous system.
1: This is Pain Refrain.
0: Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframe. This conversation is so exciting because it gets right to the heart of what so many different awesome guests have sort of walked around and discussed throughout all the episodes on our show, and that is understanding this sympathetic overdrive, right, and our inability, sort of the growing inability to be able to just manage, accept, decide, and really control our emotions and get ourselves in a place where the brain is not spinning a million miles a minute and instead we're driving the bus. And and, and Dr. Ron Garbo has some incredible ways that he implements heart rate variability to objectify that and really be able to have the science behind all of these different paradigms and strategies that we've already discussed at length. So really this is about putting together the pieces. I think you're going to really love how Dr. Garbo lays out these five principles of autonomic nervous system rehab. This is a really exciting episode and very, very applicable for those treating pain and those in pain. So let's jump right into it without further ado. Ron, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon.
2: Thank you for having me. You guys do great work.
0: Thank you. Ron, do you mind kind of giving the audience just sort of a little bit of your background and kind of where you are today practicing?
2: Sure. I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist. I'm on faculty at Eastern Virginia Medical School. I practice in the Newport News, Williamsburg, Virginia area. I've been practice over 20 years. I'm in a practice with uh, five neurosurgeons So I do a significant amount of neurorehabilitation and see a lot of patients, wide variety from rather significant brain injuries and spinal cord injuries all the way to more routine musculoskeletal pain. So I've practiced through the entire uh, ramp up with uh, opioids. It's essentially been my entire career. I've tried to figure out a way to find the common pieces between all the different things that people are trying to define and articulate, whether it's, if you've heard of integrative medicine, functional medicine, lifestyle medicine, holistic, I think there's a common theme uh, throughout those. And so I'm proposing yet another model or concept, but hopefully it's it's unifying.
0: So where do you see that common theme, Doc? What are you seeing it, that unites all these different disciplines?
2: Obviously, there's very intricate uh, medical problems that, that people have, this modern theme of sustained hypervigilance hmm. and how it affects the autonomic nervous system and the HPA axis and all of the hormonal consequences to uh, sustained hypervigilance. So I, I want us to get past the conversation, you know, Eastern philosophies versus Western philosophies and things like that. And it's more about autonomic nervous system health, understanding it. I put a high price on valuing, understanding, and I think we're on the cusp of measuring recovery for the first time ever. That's a a generalized theme of depletion of the parasympathetic nervous system. You may have heard of polyvagal theory and things like that, but I think I try to use the most pragmatic and simplistic terms, and I think when you're running on high constantly, Mm -hmm. what we do is uh, affect the health of the parasympathetic nervous system.
0: You know, we talk so often on this podcast about exactly what you're saying, kind of this constant state of hypervigilance, right? Everybody is is just running on high, very very sympathetic driven. You can just feel the cortisol pumping through their their veins and it's just a, a, an environment where people are having a really hard time turning things off. And we talk a lot about mindfulness and breathing and sleep hygiene. And all of those are really, I think, attacking that same common theme of just really not having balance in that autonomic nervous system. But one of the biggest challenges clinically is objectifying it. You know, it's, it's great when you have someone who, you know, Tim and I are, are outpatient musculoskeletal therapists. So, you know, it's great when you have someone who can't turn their neck to the right and you do some joint mobility work and some soft tissue work and some spinal manipulation. And all of a sudden they turn to the right, it's significantly better, right? You get this great patient buy-in, you both kind of feel you're going the right direction. Persistent pain in that constant state of hypervigilance is much harder, at least historically, to objectively demonstrate to you and the patient that A, you know what your baseline is. In B, you know whether or not you're making legitimate and discernible steps in the right direction towards solving it. And do you see heart rate variability being something that could reasonably be implemented in the clinic and solve that part of the issue?
2: I came upon mindful meditation around 2008 in an effort to manage my own burnout. In about 2009, I came across the science of heart rate variability, and I've been fascinated ever since, learning more and more about both heart rate variability biofeedback and HRV biomarkers and what it tells about health of the autonomic nervous system. I think if we look back 100 years ago compared to now, I mean, we had periods of time where we may have had to go get a pail of water and only occasionally did we run across a beast that may uh, trigger the fight or flight response. Now, uh, my entire patient chart and record is accessible from home via my phone. I could be called all night via the phone. I think if you're playing uh, video games, Mortal Kombat, you know, late at night, you're in a state of hypervigilance. Your brain doesn't exactly know the difference between actual combat all the time and what you're doing to your brain if you're doing that instead of sleeping. So I think we're constantly hypervigilant, even though we're getting much less exercise. And there are hormonal consequences to that.
1: You know, Ron, if you wouldn't mind taking the listeners back just a step and talk about the concept of what is heart rate variability as a marker of sympathetic or parasympathetic state.
2: Sure. So you have an average heart rate, and let's let's say it's sixty, and we get an average because there's a beat to beat difference. And there really is a nice way to put it is it's a background music of what's going on. So if if you vary from beat to beat from, say, 58 to 62, that's a very small variation. If you vary, say, from 50 to 70, you know, in both instances, the average is 60. The 50 to 70, there are three things associated with that. One is age. There isn't much you can do about that. But the two variables, it can be something that's highly related to uh, physical fitness and, and physical health as well as emotional resilience. The greater your HRV, the better. The more physically fit, the more emotionally resilient you are. And one of the big factors in that is the diaphragm working as this large piston and a secondary pump to the heart. And you can think of the diaphragm as that piston or the secondary pump. And the stronger that it is, the more assistance. So when it contracts, you're going to draw in oxygen and blood into the chest area. You've put work into the system. And then when you exhale, that's a parasympathetic moment. What conceptually sometimes is difficult, even though you're relaxing the diaphragm, there's a significant amount of work being done because that that diaphragm is dome-shaped. And so when you push down on the abdominal content, when you relax the diaphragm, uh, essentially the abdominal contents are, are coming back up into the towards the chest cavity. So there's work being done, even though you're relaxing, and that causes a temporary slowing of the heart rate.
1: It is good to have greater variability in terms of making you more resilient, less susceptible to chronic pain, and frankly, improved all, all-cause all mortality, if I'm correct. So you want to have a variable system. Is that correct?
2: You can either think of it as a, as a high diaphragmatic excursion that affects slows and Speeds up and slows the rate of the heart from beat to beat. That is a measure of the capacity of your chest wall and diaphragm and marker of health. And it makes it the heart more efficient. So you can do the same amount of work with less heartbeats. That's why a physically fit person getting assistance from the diaphragm, the brain picks up that I don't have to work as hard to just walk around the office. And the heart rate will reduce.
1: Let's stay on that fitness concept. If I am overtrained, I actually might become less variable in my heart rate variability. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. What we're on the cusp of, I think, is a model that applies to both patients as well as athletes with parasympathetic health. So I use an automobile analogy. So when when your foot's on the gas pedal all the time, you have two independent levers. Your foot's on the gas pedal. If you are braking all the time, what's that going to do with your foot on the gas all the time? You're going to wear out your brake pads. So that's the analogy I give when we do some of our deep breathing testing, that we can see that your brake pads are thin. We can also, with serial tests and overnight tests and things like that, we're also going to be able to see as you... As an athlete, starting to work out, they're grading, getting a greater size of their gas tank. But then suddenly, uh, their numbers start to drop off over successive days and weeks. And what we're, what we're seeing is they're not filling up the gas tank at night. And that's eventually going to affect their performance. There's a caveat to that. You can adrenalize your way for short periods of time rather dramatically. But, you know, if you look in the athletic world, you know, you're, you're seeing more and more athletes value recovery. So Roger Federer can maintain his high level performance, but he realizes he can't do that going to as many tournaments as he used to. So he can maintain high level performance, but less times per year. He just, he just doesn't have that capacity and has to value recovery.
1: You know, it's so interesting, Ryan, because what you've just said, we were talking about the athlete, but we could easily be talking about the patient in our clinic suffering from long-standing, persistent pain, and though we know the, the positive benefits of exercise just in general, you know, knowing thresholds and getting them in an appropriate state, given that they're often very limited and very low level coming in we're often flying blind. So I guess my question to that is, what is your recommendation in your clinic to patients? Do you put them on these monitors, all the folks coming in are are monitored? And what would you tell to our clinician listeners out there in terms of how do we best measure autonomic state today here in 2017?
2: The fifth vital sign, which I call the biggest compassion blunder that I know of in, in, in medical history it pressured us to prescribe and so I, I you know I was on the front lines of this opioid epidemic and you know I don't I don't want to point too many fingers but where I got my most frustration was when the interventional pain management at ivory towers were 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 saying keep doubling opioids and even the addictionologists at some of those uh, ivory towers and that put a tremendous pressure on me when I know that each time you double opioids uh, you increase risk dramatically and mm-hmm. you, although you do increase benefit it's not a doubling so there's a law of diminishing returns and at some point risks outweigh the benefits and what we chose as a marker was these pain scales these, these faces a the 1 to 5 scale It's really an awful measure of pain. You know, I'll have patients that come a year later. Their pain numbers will still be the same. And I'll ask them how they're doing, and they'll say they're in pain. And and then I'll take them back to a year ago where they were on XYZ Medicines, not doing this activity, re-engaged, driving, working, whatever. And they'll say, oh, my goodness, I'm not the same. this, This notion and title of your podcast, Reframed, is an interesting one. So here are some of the the markers that I think particularly important. One of the psychological markers that I find the most beneficial is the pain catastrophizing scale. Mm -hmm. And the pain catastrophizing scale is three elements. Amplification, synonym for that is magnification, and helplessness. And there's a lot of research done on what's called learned helplessness. And I think that's what we're trying to target. But for me, the most interesting and most important and the third parameter of the catastrophizing construct is rumination. Mm-hmm. So ruminations are associated with chronic pain. They're predictive of chronic pain after elective surgery. Wow. So ruminations is important. So now I'm here's where I'm going to ask you to take a leap. I think it's fair to say there's only one real emotion for the sympathetic fight or flight response and that's fear. Fear of future injury, fear of future pain, uh, fear of movement, are all associated with chronic pain and disability. So it's my opinion that it's fear rumination. And so put it more simply, I break it down that fear is the fuel. I make a big point to go over the physical, nociceptive, neuropathic components of pain. And then I outline a model where fear is the fuel. I basically wanna make a deal. I'm gonna work on the fire with X, Y, Z. And I want you, in addition to working on the fire with certain things, I want you to learn, you're standing in front of that fire with two buckets in your hand. It just so happens those buckets are full of gasoline. So I need you to stop basically flailing around and learn how to set them down and let go. That whole notion of letting go in mindfulness, as well as letting go, I think, I also talk about a latching mechanism between your automatic brain and the more creative part of your brain and the frontal lobes and so forth. So you're learning to let go of that fight-or-flight choices, which are typically fight, flight, or freeze. If you're still with me, the next leap to get to physiologic, you know, when I talk to psychiatrists, one of the paradigm shifts we have to make is, we can't just talk biochemistry. And I'm a, a neuromuscular electrophysiologist. I am venturing a little into the cardiology world. So now I'm taking you from psychology to cardiology. And I'm a neuromuscular. So so I get that there's a little bit of trust you're going to have to have in me. But again, the, the data is solid. So we can, with deep breathing tests, assess the health of the parasympathetic nervous system. Reduced HRV. Think about this. In addition to be a marker for inflammation, these are meta analysis studies. Inflammation, chronic pain, mortality after myocardial infarction, associated with uh, morbidity with diabetes mellitus, uh, predictive of ischemic stroke in people who don't have usual risk factors. There's all this data to support that it's a biomarker of physical and emotional health. Here's another powerful one. It is predictive of future PTSD. Hmm. I have a, a partner, uh, Tim Wiles, who does uh, work with the military, and where we can, those measurements can be taken. And so, let's say we have 20 people preparing for deployment, and as tension is building in the background, that background tension is is there. And if you have fear ruminations, you continue to not value recovery, and you're having a poor performance, and you decide to keep working harder, and you keep having fear ruminations, you can just imagine what your HRV values are going to do. So here's what the military is dealing with. It's called the polytrauma triad. Chronic pain, PTSD, and persistent concussive symptoms. People with concussion syndrome, they can have a dozen sort of symptoms, but they all have at least two things damage to the autonomic nervous system, and circadian disruption. They can have a mix of headaches, dizziness, double vision, you name it, but they all have those, too. PTSD is an event where you're stuck in hypervigilance. Chronic pain is a relationship between the physical component, the fire, and then this hypervigilance. So there's a mutual maintenance between PTSD and chronic pain that keeps you hypervigilant. So we have to value, understand, and start measuring recovery.
1: It really gets to that that idea of where you're at now, seeing the mechanisms underlying these what were thought of to be disparate entities. And we like to talk about in this podcast a lot that the barriers or the these false dichotomies between what is, quote, you know, mental health and physical health, I think are crumbling before our eyes. Is it, It's just such an odd way of separating our human experience. And when we now look at it from a more neurological, electrophysiological, cardiological perspective, we see a similar mechanism underlying multiple different, quote, disorders that we have labeled mental health problem or this or that right. in the past.
2: You won't really hear me talk about bipolar, fibromyalgia, PTSD. Although those are decent terms to communicate and for coding and things like that, I don't want people to identify with that ICD code as their identity. I talk about sustained hypervigilance. If I do my job of being a good listener, empathetic, explaining the no component to satisfaction and I I validate and I do do my job as a provider, I am then very often allowed to in a thoughtful and kind manner hold people accountable to their hypervigilance. The way I assess risk in my clinic, it's pretty much based on the patient's behavior. If they're engaged, I pretty much know that I have Greater flexibility and can maybe take a little more risk that if I prescribe say 20 pills of something that it's unlikely they're going to take them all at once when somebody's engaged. When I, when somebody else, so I call them partners. When somebody comes to me as a customer and they expect me to take care of everything, I actually become aware that there's a little greater risk. So I use it, I use it as a Occam's razor for assessing risk. I'm trying to to define what I call autonomic nervous system rehabilitation and try and take you through that process.
0: Is that the crux of, because I love that term. When you and I were on the phone yesterday, you had talked about autonomic nervous system rehabilitation, and it just struck me as a brilliant term because all these different disorders, like you guys mentioned, that were labeling you know, anxiety and, and catastrophizing and fear and chronic pain and, and all these different really iterations and byproducts of what appears to be just sympathetic overdrive the prescription for that should be autonomic nervous system rehabilitation i mean I mean that really is what we're trying to do is breathing then you know the the baseline measurement with heart rate variability and then breathing exercises is that really the crux of it all or, or, or are there multiple points that you play into uh, what you would yeah. consider re- rehab
2: you know, usually we're doing studies with salivary cortisols and this and that after the HPA axis has been triggered. So you want to maybe take a step before that and wouldn't you want to change the signal to the body from the brain? So this is where notions of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, magnetic stimulation, or, or this and that, and that way it's one step before. The beauty of HRV, uh, or even EEG biofeedback, The beauty of HRV, it's another step precursor. So it's the signal from the heart to the brain. So it's two steps removed. In addition to that, what's different about HRV from all the others, it's very immediate. And we're talking about microvolts versus millivolts in EEG. So that's profoundly more versatile and durable as we get into this wearable age. And the beautiful thing is, is I don't have to quote studies that are ongoing and I won't, but uh, I can quote, again, these decades of studies of what we've seen from halter monitoring, but halter monitoring has been incredibly cumbersome. So it's prior to the triggering of the cerebral triggering of the HPA axis. So if you can shift the signal, and so that we, we call this bottom up. So EEG, cognitive behavioral therapy is top down. HRV, mindfulness, maybe acceptance commitment therapy are bottom up. And it's it's another way to assess and to treat things. I got five points to it. And the first one, I put exercise first because it is the largest modifier of HRV. Okay. A strong diaphragm exercise changes your HRV.
0: Ron, is there uh, a particular type of exercise that really seems to shine or, or is it any?
2: Well, I'm going to use broad strokes But our, our most resilient people are our most fit people, period. They, however, are not necessarily our most emotionally stable, you know. So, you know, let's, let's use extremes. So let's, an out of shape expert meditator versus an overdriven, physically fit super athlete. The athlete is more resilient. The meditator is probably more emotionally stable. So, you know, you see this when, when I, when I've treated say runners with a stress fracture, they want to run as soon as they start to feel better and they become obsessed, hypervigilant with getting the number of miles in. So this notion of hypervigilance can, you know, oftentimes we direct it from unhealthy things, you know, you know, going from the spectrum from say opioids to, you know, smoking to then, you know, maybe it's playing video games, uh, or then maybe it's being able to run a certain number of miles. The emotion that drives all of those, here's this oversimplification, but I think it's valid, of the DSM, you mentioned all these diagnoses, the DSM book, which I'd love to get rid of, but addictions, it's craving blank. There are some healthier things that we can crave, like that runner, i got to get 100 miles in a week, or. They start to act a little nutty, you know, or maybe you crave looking great. So although exercise is very healthy, the craving eventually can get you you to run into trouble. And we have an entire consumer base that's trying to get everybody addicted with various bells and whistles and commercials and this and that to get you to crave products, staying up a a little bit longer, posting one more time. For me, or craving a national championship, or in my case, my patients, what I like to say is they're not seeking euphoria. They're craving to be pain-free, which is driven by unremitting fear ruminations of future pain, future movement. So it's craving and fear ruminations that are the core of this. But the most resilient is associated with exercise, so I put that first. You know, oftentimes i got to back off that. And I might say, you know, you got to, you're going to have to choose something before we get you into physical therapy. You're going to have to walk every day. I don't care how long you walk. So the second one is something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And this is a breathing in uh, rate of five seconds in loosely and five seconds out. I call it the beginner's breath. There are better breathing techniques for autonomic nervous system. I like to call this the beginner's breath. This is where you should start. You cannot escalate a panic attack physiologically when you're breathing five seconds in, five seconds out. Your body, if you develop a habit of it, your body will figure out what you're trying to do as you get better and better at it. And, and here's, a, here's a practical tip. Don't tell people to take a breath. What they'll do is take it and hold it and bear down. <laughs> What you want people to do is long exhales. So all I typically do is tell people, long, slow exhales. Long, slow exhales. And everything will take care of itself. If it's long and slow, they won't hyperventilate, and they'll have that long parasympathetic moment. Mm-hmm. But you can return to your panic attack the second you stop. This is a critical point for me when you do what's called respiratory sinus everything. You have a moment to counsel somebody, to talk them through that old you know, is that a paper tiger or is that a real tiger? Is that a stick or a snake? But people can't get out of the fear ruminations until you lower their vigilance and augment their autonomic nervous system. So that's what, for me, the critical thing is developing this habit of resonant breathing. Mindfulness is fabulous, but you can't assign homework and check it. And so this is to me, a truly revolutionary moment that we're doing, we can assign breathing homework and check it.
0: From a dosage perspective, h- how often are you prescribing that? I mean, I'm sure there's some variance, but do you have sort of a, of a knee-jerk reaction to what that initial prescription might be as far as times per day and amount of time doing it?
2: It's really about the habit. And even if you skip the day, it's getting back to the habit. So if you're doing it right before you go to sleep, instead of playing Mortal Kombat video game, what you're doing is, is triggering the anabolic response faster and sooner when you go to sleep and you have better recovery. And we know the difference between fibromyalgia and anxiety with healthier physiology is the quality of their sleep. So resonant breathing each night before you go to bed can make your recovery, get into deeper recovery quicker and faster, the steepness of that curve. Additionally, I want to make one huge point. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is, is quite good, but there's, there's one part about it and this notion of cognitive restructuring under duress and distraction techniques. What, what we're really doing with this is disengaging the fight or flight response. That's what we're trying to do as opposed to distraction. So again, if you're constantly becoming excellent at distracting, and you continually choose less healthy distractions. You know, you've worked your way from opioids to alcohol to this, and now now you're obsessed with exercise. That's good, but you still haven't learned how to disengage. So you now have that stress fracture. You're going to have to learn how to calm that mind. So the second step is uh, resonant breathing, 10 minutes BID and PRN. It's a habit. And one thing to note, it's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. It was called arrhythmia because we at first thought it was unhealthy. And so I want to start a different conversation. Whenever we don't understand something, we think of it as unhealthy. In the literature, there's this study that they talk about deaths in triathletes, and they call it autonomic conflict. And it's this giant surge of tone, both sympathetic and parasympathetic, from, from the brain to the sinoatrial node in the heart coming down in the same place. When you get those signals, you can, with respiratory sinus arrhythmia, shift your HRV into a coordinated. So now we're learning something different. Not only are we working with the size of your excursion, with those long diaphragmatic breaths, but now there's a coordination that's happening. So now you can think of your diaphragm as the biggest wedge into your autonomic nervous system, but now you can also think of it as a surfboard for your heart. When the heart and the lung are coordinated together, the HRV is even bigger. You're even more efficient. So that I call is a skill that you learn off of the habit, and that's the third one, and that's shifting emotion on demand objectively. And so here's one of the break points where you can lose some people. Uh, But you've seen people who shift emotion, and you can just visualize there's got to be a biomarker and i think this is it. and one example i give is, you know, think about last thanksgiving before you ate. did you remember to be grateful or did you feel gratitude? there's a shift that can happen. you could turn devices different colors and things like that when you feel gratitude. so we know that, you know, anywhere between 30 and 50% of females who have chronic pain were abused as children. so they are hypervigilant since childhood. They can remember to be grateful, but literally struggle to feel gratitude. And so now we have objective ways to try and talk them through and teach them the skill to augment the autonomic nervous system. Learning how to shift emotion objectively on demand, how potentially powerful, if we have the right tools and the right teams are set up with the right education, how powerful that that can be. The fourth one I call platforms and resets. Uh, I want to redefine how we look at our treatments, whether it's spinal cord stimulation, opioids, acupuncture, good nutrition. You know, let's talk about them in the terms of platforms and resets. I do believe that there are, is a role for opioids. Um, I do not believe that that flower is inherently evil or good. I don't inherently think willow bark where we get aspirin from is inherently evil or good. Aspirin can save your life in a heart attack, or if you're bleeding in your brain, it would be a profoundly bad idea for me to tell you to chew an aspirin. What I'll do is I give it a specific type of opioid called buprenorphine. It's incredibly slow. It's a partial mu agonist, so you you never get the full surge, and other opioids bounce right off that receptor. So it is not sought after abuse and it, it's now there's a generic transdermal and so I call it a platform. I think acupuncture is a better choice when I have somebody who's opioid naive but if they're coming to me from somebody who just lost their license or they've just been to three different universities and they're on these high doses I'm coming down from somewhere higher that maybe isn't in the window of acupuncture so I will maybe adjust them to this platform. So this buprenorphine does not increase the reward cycle. So again, addiction is not about opioids, it's about craving. So you're not in this reward cycle when you give this type of opioids. And if you're doing your breathing techniques and so forth, and you've just come to me from another practitioner that's given you four Vicodins a day and giving you two or three Ativan's a day for your anxiety, what I'll do is give you this platform and then I'll try and give you somewhere between zero and 20 resets per month. And and I'll give them a choice, you know, do you want the Vicodin or do you want the anxiety? doesn't matter that much to me. The key is that you're not going from hand to mouth to cope with your pain more than 20 times a month. Because it tells me that 10 days per month you're going without breakthrough. So you have some comfort to know you have a backup, but you're also exposed. And I tell them, I'm gonna give you this platform you're gonna be exposed mentally now. You're gonna have all this space. And the best example I can give is, let's say you're quitting smoking. I'll give you a nicotine patch, so I'm covering the nicotine receptor. Now you have to figure out what you're gonna do when you have your cup of coffee and you're a little nervous, and what are you gonna do with your hands? This is where the breathing techniques, exercise, choosing other self-care. So the key I need for a patient to do is to choose themselves as their first coping strategy. So when we start comparing platforms like opioids versus acupuncture versus nutritional counseling, we can look at the risks, benefits, costs, and then we can also look at resets in the same way. So I want to take down some of those barriers because when you head to an interventional pain management clinic, you know what they get passionate about, their scope is narrow. It's hard to get those kind of clinics passionate about anything that doesn't reimburse extremely well. Um, and that excludes so many things. So if we use terms like platforms and resets, it brings it all together. It takes the east-west cultural thing out. You know, let's talk about the risk, benefits, and costs of various treatments in that form. The fifth one is acceptance. You know, if you have PTSD, uh, you have to accept your amygdala the way it is. You know, this event happened. It's in that amygdala, and it's there for a reason. It's there to protect you. You may not have ability for it not to be triggered, so you have to accept that. I do want you to learn the skills to reduce your vigilance before you make a decision. So the deciding, I want you to get out of the automatic brain into the frontal lobe. You know, the cognitive behavioral therapy and those kind of things are better after you reduce the vigilance. So the, the order is incredibly important. So if I oversimplify what acceptance is, if you remember the five steps of grieving, acceptance is the fifth step. If you remember the 12-step program, the first step is accepting you have a problem. So c- acceptance kind of sits between uh, the five steps of grieving and the beginning of the 12-step program. Another way I look at acceptance is, it's truth without emotion. When you can get to truth without emotion, that this event happened to me, and you learn your skills to reduce your uh, vigilance, uh, you're getting closer and closer to acceptance. So let me give you an example of what I did with this young girl who I couldn't get into psychological counseling, couldn't get her initially into physical therapy. She had been accused of substance abuse. She'd even been accused of Munchausen, which is hurting herself. She practiced twice a day. She practiced in the evening. She would started to understand that getting a B did not affect who she was and the quality of person she was. You know, I did use a long-acting opioid. I did drastically reduce her PRN pain medications and expose her. And then each night, for acceptance, what I finally did was, I want you to do your breathing. I want you to lower your vigilance. I want you to write down all your ugliness. And I want you to look at it while you're breathing. Sit with it. And incredibly slowly, I want you to tear it up, throw it away. No one has to see it. But you're in control. You're looking at it. You're not afraid. You're owning all these judgments that drive our fight or flight response. So ultimately I believe people to, to have success are going to have to make certain decisions and you have to get in a habit of reducing your vigilance. So I simplify for patients my method with stop, shift and decide. Stop the racing brain with this habit, shift emotion on demand and then decide. And the decisions might be forgiving yourself, forgiving someone else, accepting that this event happened to you, deciding that this time I'm going to try breathing instead of taking a pill. That's the basic model.
1: Ron, that's excellent. You've laid out five elements uh, for the listeners. And I would like to thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. And how do they find you, first of all? And then also any other information you'd like to put out that we can put in our show notes?
2: I I have a website, ansrehabilitation.com. But probably the simplest thing is LinkedIn. You can contact me through LinkedIn.
1: Once again, I can't thank you enough. And this has been a fascinating conversation. And we're clearly going to get lots of questions coming from this. And thanks for demystifying and taking some of the horror and fear out of, uh, you know, what's really going on in many of these conditions.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Fear is the fuel. Let me repeat that. Fear is the fuel driving a lot of the problems we're seeing throughout persistent pain. Dr. Garbo laid out really a five-step program that he's really focused on in working in individuals suffering from a variety of disorders, you know, starting with exercise and this concept of resonant breathing and shifting emotions, but never uh underestimating the platform and the resets so a system that, which you can go by each month finally that number 5 that of acceptance putting truth without emotion labeling something this is the truth but without emotion and again what a what a fascinating episode on many levels and this is going to surely drive conversation and we'll be talking a lot more about this whole concept and principles in upcoming episodes. Thanks again to all our supporters out there. If you're enjoying what you hear, go on Facebook, send some likes to us, follow us on social media, EIM Team, or follow Jeff and I on Twitter. And more importantly, go to ispinstitute.com and check out some of their innovative programming that really gets to the heart of teaching people about pain and making a difference in the management of persistent pain. Pain in our society. Once again, thanks for listening.
0: Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ISPinstitute.com.